Book Six, Chapter Thirteen of the Mill on the Floss. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Book Six: The Great Temptation, Chapter Thirteen. Born along by the tide. In less than a week, Maggie was at St. Ogg's again. Outwardly in much the same position as when her visit there had just begun, it was easy for her to fill her mornings apart from Lucy without any obvious effort, for she had her promised visits to pay to her aunt Glegg, and it was natural that she should give her mother more than usual of her companionship in these last weeks, especially as there were preparations to be thought of for Tom's housekeeping. But Lucy would hear of no pretext for her remaining away in the evenings. She must always come from Aunt Glegg's before dinner. Else, what shall I have of you? Said Lucy, with a tearful pout that could not be resisted. And Mister Stephen Guest had unaccountably taken to dining at Mister Dean's as often as possible, instead of avoiding that as he used to do. At first, he began his mornings with a resolution that he would not dine there, not even go in the evening till Maggie was away. He had even devised a plan of starting off on a journey in this agreeable June weather. The headaches which he had constantly been alleging as grounds for stupidity and silence were a sufficient ostensible motive. But the journey was not taken, and by the fourth morning no distinct resolution was formed about the evenings. They were only foreseen as times when Maggie would still be present for a little while, when one more touch, one more glance might be snatched. For why not? There was nothing to conceal between them. They knew they had confessed their love, and they had renounced each other. They were going to part. Honour and conscience were going to divide them. Maggie, with that appeal from her inmost soul, had decided it. But surely they might cast a lingering look at each other across the gulf, before they turned away never to look again till that strange light had for ever faded out of their eyes. Maggie, all this time, moved about with a quiescence and even torpor of manner, so contrasted with her usual fitful brightness and ardour, that Lucy would have had to seek some other cause for such a change if she had not been convinced that the position in which Maggie stood between Philip and her brother, and the prospect of her self-imposed wearisome banishment, were quite enough to account for a large amount of depression. But under this torpor there was a fierce battle of emotions. Such as Maggie, in all her life of struggle, had never known or foreboded. It seemed to her as if all the worst evil in her had lain in ambush till now, and had suddenly started up full armed with hideous, overpowering strength. There were moments in which a cruel selfishness seemed to be getting possession of her. Why should not Lucy? Why should not Philip suffer? She had had to suffer through many years of her life, and who had renounced anything for her? And when something like that fullness of existence. Love, wealth, ease, refinement—all that her nature craved—was brought within her reach. Why was she to forego it that another might have it? Another who perhaps needed it less. But amidst all this new passionate tumult, there were the old voices making themselves heard with rising power, till from time to time the tumult seemed quelled. Was that existence which tempted her the full existence she dreamed? Where then would be all the memories of early striving, all the deep pity for another's pain, which had been nurtured in her through years of affection and hardship, 
all the divine presentiment of something higher than mere personal enjoyment which had made the sacredness of life she might as well hope to enjoy walking by maiming her feet as hope to enjoy an existence in which she set out by maiming the faith and sympathy that were the best organs of her soul and then if pain was so hard to her what was it to others ah god preserve me from afflicting give me strength to bear it how had she sunk into this struggle with temptation that she would once have thought herself as secure from as from deliberate crime when was that first hateful moment in which she had been conscious of a feeling that clashed with her truth affection and gratitude and had not shaken it from her with horror as if it had been a loathsome thing and yet since this strange sweet subduing influence did not should not conquer her since it was to remain simply in her own suffering her mind was meeting stephen's in that thought of his that they might still snatch moments of mute confession before the parting came for was he not suffering too she saw it daily saw it in the sickened look of fatigue with which as soon as he was not compelled to exert himself he relapsed into indifference towards everything but the possibility of watching her could she refuse sometimes to answer that beseeching look which she felt to be following her like a low murmur of love and pain she refused it less and less till at last the evening for both of them was sometimes made of a moment's mutual gaze they thought of it till it came and when it had come they thought of nothing else one other thing stephen seemed now and then to care for and that was to sing it was a way of speaking to maggie perhaps he was not distinctly conscious that he was impelled to it by a secret longing running counter to all his self-confessed resolves to deepen the hold he had on her watch your own speech and note how it is guided by your less conscious purposes and you will understand that contradiction in stephen philip wakem was a less frequent visitor but he came occasionally in the evening and it happened that he was there when lucy said as they sat out on the lawn near sunset now maggie's tale of visits to aunt glegg is completed i mean that we shall go out boating every day until she goes she has not had half enough boating because of these tiresome visits and she likes it better than anything don't you maggie better than any sort of locomotion i hope you mean said philip smiling at maggie who was lolling backwards in a low garden chair else she will be selling her soul to that ghostly boatman who haunts the floss only for the sake of being drifted in a boat for ever should you like to be her boatman said lucy because if you would you can come with us and take an oar if the floss were but a quiet lake instead of a river we should be independent of any gentleman for maggie can row splendidly as it is we are reduced to ask the services of knights and squires who do not seem to offer them with great alacrity she looked playful reproach at stephen who was sauntering up and down and was just singing in pianissimo falsetto the thirst that from the soul doth rise doth ask a drink divine he took no notice but still kept aloof he had done so frequently during philip's recent visits you don't seem inclined for boating said lucy when he came to sit down by her on the bench doesn't rowing suit you now oh i hate a large party in a boat he said almost irritably i'll come when you have no one else 
Lucy coloured, fearing that Philip would be hurt. It was quite a new thing for Stephen to speak in that way, but he had certainly not been well of late. Philip coloured too, but less from a feeling of personal offence than from a vague suspicion that Stephen's moodiness had some relation to Maggie, who started up from her chair as he spoke, and had walked towards the hedge of laurels to look down at the descending sunlight on the river. "'As Miss Dean didn't know she was excluding others by inviting me,' said Philip, "'I am bound to resign.' "'No, indeed, you shall not,' said Lucy, much vexed. "'I particularly wish for your company to-morrow. "'The tide will suit at half-past ten. "'It will be a delicious time for a couple of hours to row to Luckworth and walk back "'before the sun gets too hot. "'And how can you object to four people in a boat?' she added, looking at Stephen." "'I don't object to people, but the number,' said Stephen, "'who had recovered himself and was rather ashamed of his rudeness. "'If I voted for a fourth at all, of course, it would be you, Phil. "'But we won't divide the pleasure of escorting the ladies. "'We'll take it alternately. I'll go the next day.' "'This incident had the effect of drawing Philip's attention "'with fresh and solicitude towards Stephen and Maggie. "'But when they re-entered the house, music was proposed, "'and Mrs. Tulliver and Mr. Dean, being occupied with cribbage, Maggie sat apart near the table, where the books and work were placed, doing nothing, however, but listening abstractedly to the music. Stephen presently turned to a duet, which he insisted that Lucy and Philip should sing. He had often done the same thing before, but this evening Philip thought he divined some double intention in every word and look of Stephen's, and watched him keenly, angry with himself all the while for this clinging suspicion. "'for had not Maggie virtually denied any ground for his doubts on her side? "'And she was truth itself. "'It was impossible not to believe her word and glance "'when they had last spoken together in the garden. "'Stephen might be strongly fascinated by her. "'What was more natural? "'But Philip felt himself rather base "'for intruding on what must be his friend's painful secret. "'Still he watched. "'Stephen, moving away from the piano, sauntered slowly towards the table near which Maggie sat, and turned over the newspapers, apparently in mere idleness. Then he seated himself with his back to the piano, dragging a newspaper under his elbow, and thrusting his hand through his hair, as if he had been attracted by some bit of local news in the Lacombe Courier. He was in reality looking at Maggie, who had not taken the slightest notice of his approach. She always had additional strength of resistance when Philip was present, just as we can restrain our speech better in a spot we feel to be hallowed. But at last she heard the word dearest uttered in the softest tone of pained entreaty, like that of a patient who asks for something that ought to have been given without asking. She had never heard that word since the moments in the lane at Bassett, when it had come from Stephen again and again, "'almost as involuntarily as if it had been an inarticulate cry. "'Philip could hear no word, but he had moved to the opposite side of the piano, "'and could see Maggie start and blush, "'raise her eyes an instant towards Stephen's face, "'but immediately look apprehensively towards himself. "'It was not evident to her that Philip had observed her, "'but a pang of shame under the sense of this concealment "'made her move from her chair and walk to her mother's side "'to watch the game at cribbage. "'Philip went home soon after in a state of hideous doubt "'mixed with wretched certainty. 
it was impossible for him now to resist the conviction that there was some mutual consciousness between Stephen and Maggie, and for half the night his irritable, susceptible nerves were pressed upon almost to frenzy by that one wretched fact. He could attempt no explanation that would reconcile it with her words and actions. When at last the need for belief in Maggie rose to its habitual predominance, he was not long in imagining the truth. She was struggling, she was banishing herself. This was the clue to all he had seen since his return. But athwart that belief there came other possibilities that would not be driven out of sight. His imagination wrought out the whole story. Stephen was madly in love with her. He must have told her so. She had rejected him and was hurrying away. But would he give her up knowing, Philip felt the fact with heart-crushing despair, that she was made half helpless by her feeling toward him? When the morning came, Philip was too ill to think of keeping his engagement to go in the boat. In his present agitation he could decide on nothing. He could only alternate between contradictory intentions. First he thought he must have an interview with Maggie and entreat her to confide in him. Then again he distrusted his own interference. Had he not been thrusting himself on Maggie all along? She had uttered words long ago in her young ignorance. It was enough to make her hate him that these should be continually present with her as a bond. And had he any right to ask for a revelation of feelings which she had evidently intended to withhold from him? He would not trust himself to see her till he had assured himself that he could act from pure anxiety for her and not from egoistic irritation. He wrote a brief note to Stephen and sent it early by the servant, saying that he was not well enough to fulfil his engagement to Miss Dean. Would Stephen take his excuse and fill his place? Lucy had arranged a charming plan which made her quite content with Stephen's refusal to go in the boat. She discovered that her father was to drive to Lindham this morning at ten. Lindham was the very place she wanted to go to to make purchases, important purchases, which must by no means be put off for another opportunity. And Aunt Tulliver must go too, because she was concerned in some of the purchases. "'You will have your row in the boat just the same, you know,' she said to Maggie, when they went out of the breakfast-room and upstairs together. "'Philip will be here at half-past ten, and it is a delicious morning. "'Now don't say a word against it, you dear Dolores thing. "'What's the use of me being a fairy godmother "'if you set your face against all the wonders I work for you? "'Don't think of awful cousin Tom. "'You may disobey him a little.' "'Maggie did not persist in objecting.' She was almost glad of the plan, for perhaps it would bring her some strength and calmness to be alone with Philip again. It was like revisiting the scene of a quieter life, in which the very struggles were repose, compared with the daily tumult of the present. She prepared herself for the boat, and at half-past ten sat waiting in the drawing-room. The ring of the door-bell was punctual, and she was thinking, with half-sad affectionate pleasure, of the surprise Philip would have in finding that he wished to be with her alone, when she distinguished a firm, rapid step across the hall that was certainly not Philip's. The door opened, and Stephen Guest entered. In the first moment they were both too much agitated to speak, for Stephen had learnt from the servant that the others were gone out. Maggie had started up and sat down again, with her heart beating violently, and Stephen, throwing down his cap and gloves, came and sat by her in silence. She thought Philip would be coming soon, and with great effort, for she trembled visibly, she rose to go to a distant chair. 
"'He is not coming,' said Stephen in a low tone. "'I am going in the boat.' "'Oh, we can't go,' said Maggie, sinking into her chair again. "'Lucy did not expect she would be hurt. "'Why has not Philip come?' "'He is not well. He asked me to come instead.' "'Lucy's gone to Lindum,' said Maggie, taking off her bonnet with hurried, trembling fingers. "'We must not go.' "'Very well,' said Stephen, dreamily, looking at her, as he rested his arm on the back of his chair. "'Then we'll stay here.' He was looking into her deep, deep eyes, far off and mysterious as the starlit blackness, and yet very near and timidly loving. Maggie sat perfectly still. "'perhaps for moments, perhaps for minutes, "'until the helpless trembling had ceased "'and there was a warm glow on her cheek. "'The man is waiting. "'He has taken the cushion,' she said. "'Will you go and tell him?' "'What shall I tell him?' said Stephen, almost in a whisper. "'He was looking at the lips now. "'Maggie made no answer. "'Let us go,' Stephen muttered entreatingly, "'rising and taking her hand to raise her too. "'We shall not be long together.' 